Welcome to Succession Stories, insights for next-generation entrepreneurs. I'm Lori Barkman. I work with entrepreneurs to achieve their dreams. Next-generation entrepreneurs face a complex future with the weight of their family legacy and business investment on their shoulders. On this podcast, listen in while I talk with entrepreneurs who are driving innovation and culture change. I speak with owners who successfully transition their company and others who experience disappointment along the way. Guests also include experts in multi-generational businesses and entrepreneurship. If you are a next-generation entrepreneur looking for inspiration to grow and thrive, or an owner who can't figure out the best way to transition their closely held company, this podcast is for you. On this week's episode of Succession Stories, I was joined by Tony Uphoff, President and CEO of Thomas. Thomas is a family-owned, fifth-generation, 122-year-old company that over time completely transformed its business model. Tony joined the company a few years ago, bringing with him decades of entrepreneurial expertise leading disruptive businesses. Our discussion focused on a few key themes. The importance of positive change management to foster a culture of innovation. The journey of digital transformation and how digital technologies converge with traditional industrial products and services. The importance of owner readiness and transition planning and cultural dynamics for family-run companies to consider when hiring a key leader from the outside to find the right fit. It was great to speak with Tony about his insights regarding innovation and culture change. Thanks for tuning in. Tony, I'm just so thrilled that you're on the podcast today and thank you so much for joining me. And I was wondering if you could just start by taking us through your background and what was your first role in the media industry? How did you get interested in publishing? Yeah. First off, Lori, thanks very much. And I'm thrilled with the idea of your podcast and thrilled that we were asked to be a part of it. My earliest memories of kind of my family dinner table was listening to my grandmother, who was an English professor at University of Southern California, my father, who was an ad sales guy, and my mom, who was an English teacher and part-time journalist. And so I kind of grew up understanding this wacky business that we might think of as the media business. And it provided a, a background for me that I really appreciated the written word. And so I early on would read newspapers and magazines and, you know, this is pre-internet, obviously. And, and I, I just grew up in that kind of environment. And when I got out of school, I studied marketing. and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I had this weird idea that the creative energy that was around this idea of publishing just made sense to me intuitively. And I think part of it is it was a part of this daily conversation I had so I could kind of see the whole playing field, if that makes sense. I kind of understood the business perhaps, you know, experientially, even though I'd never done it. So I started my career. It was really hard to get in the industry back then. It was back in an era where the big publishing companies wouldn't hire you unless you had experience. And I can remember having these awkward conversations of, wait a minute, so if you won't hire me, how do I get experience? How exactly is this going to work? And I ended up going to work for a rep firm in Southern California that represented a series of business-to-business technical magazines. And it was my start in the industry. And I very quickly just fell in love with it. And the idea of understanding the complexities and challenges that advertisers had, trying to explain how technical buyers are involved and how they read this information and how they engage with companies just made sense to me. And I leveraged a little bit of my marketing studies. And then pretty quickly, I got to a point where the drive of, I want to go publish, I want to do this. And that, you know, took hold. And after a couple of years, I started to get recognized in the industry. And I had this 
ridiculously bizarre fork in the road between two career opportunities. So I was offered a job to be a sales rep on a brand called Electronic Engineering Times and be moved to the Silicon Valley with my then newlywed bride. And, and it was the beginning of a lot of the big tech boom in the Silicon Valley. And I was also offered a job to sell on Sports Illustrated at the exact same time. So you couldn't have picked two more divergent opportunities. And I made the brilliant strategic decision that EE Times paid a bit more than Sports Illustrated did. So that's where I went. So that's where you went. And so that was the start of your journey in publishing. But little did you know how much that industry was going to be transformed by becoming, you know, what it is today. And, and we forget that it was just print for a long yeah. time. Yeah. And print was the mainstay. And so you had a front seat to that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Lori. You know, I think to an extent, you and I share some mutual friends who have lived parallel paths with us here. I now look back and realize how fortunate I was that I had a ringside seat at these early stages of technology. So if I go back and use the example of EE Times, my very, really first job in publishing as a sales rep, I was going in and out of the the offices at Intel where Andy Grove might walk into a meeting and start engaging with you about something he read in EE Times. You know, so it wasn't the valley you knew today and we couldn't have predicted what was going to happen. But I was watching these disruptive technologies impact businesses, and I just watched it. I was on the campus of Microsoft early, on Dell, you know, all these different companies. And I realize now what a huge benefit that was, but really what I think it did is it gave me a little bit of an awareness of, hey, this isn't just going to happen in business technology. What we're witnessing, you know, the old, you know, software is eating the world model, what we're witnessing is this, this series of disruptive changes is going to become the new norm. And so about midway through my career, I'm now running a, a huge brand, one of the largest brands that ever was created in, in B2B media called Information Week. And it was the leading read for tech professionals. And the internet came along. We were one of the first to get involved with the internet. And so if I look at my career, it's divided almost exactly in half pre-post internet. And long-winded way of saying, I think that was a huge benefit. So two benefits I got is I, I understood the world before the internet, and I've had deep experience with the internet. So that's an advantage. I think the other advantage was I watched and participated in these disruptive cycles of technology. So I guess, you know, yes, I was in the front seat of the roller coaster as print started to give way to digital, but I had my hands up and I was, was having a thrill ride with it, right? I wasn't trying to fight it. I was embracing it. And I think had I not had that kind of front row experience, I might have fought it. And I might have tried to convince everybody, no, print's not going away. Let's hang in here. And, you know, I'm not trying to make a statement about print versus other forms of media. But it became clear pretty quickly this was going to move. And it was going to move in very unpredictable ways, meaning you couldn't predict the decline of print. It was going to free fall to a certain extent. So I think I was very fortunate to have those series of experiences. You were inside the tornado, as they say. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And at some point, you realized that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and you created your own business around 2000. Is that right? Yeah. So I worked my way up in a couple of companies and I was at a legendary company called Ziff Davis for many years run by, you know, for my money, the only pure genius we've had in, in business information, a guy named Bill Ziff. I was then recruited a company called CMP Media and we helped build that company up, take it public and do all kinds of fun stuff called CMP Media. And that was a great experience. And around 97, 98, 99, 
it literally, and it's going to sound like a cliche, I couldn't clear off my voicemail with a number of phone calls that folks like me were getting about early stage internet companies. And I had a couple friends of mine that literally made silly money opportunities where they were, you know, employee number five at company, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't to me about the money. It was really about, okay, I've worked at other people's companies and I've started products inside of a company, but I've never really walked in where it was really a whiteboard and a bunch of smart people and built something from scratch. And that's what actually drew me to it is I thought, you know what, I got to go try one of these. One of my mentors is a, is a guy named Dr. James Cash, and he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He's retired now, but he was a longtime uh, tenured professor at Harvard Business School. He sat on the board of Microsoft and General Electric at the exact same time. Just a remarkable guy. And so oftentimes at career stages, I would turn to him and ask his advice. And what he said to me is he said, go, literally, this casually, go try one. Because he said, you know, this era may go away, but he said, it'll be a great experience. And he said, the worst that happens, you spend a couple of years, it doesn't fly. And he said, if it doesn't, don't be distracted by that. Just get back in the game. And he said, you know, you're, you're at a stage where you want to try one of these. So I did. And uh, boy, what a crazy experience over a three-year period. Raised a lot of money for this company. Took it through the dot-com crash. Took it through September 11th. I mean, so many crazy things that went through. But I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. I mean, it taught me a lot. And I still look back on some of the lessons and not all positive ones that I learned from that experience. Yeah, you, you were an innovator, you were an entrepreneur, and then you became an entrepreneur. Yeah. So it sounds like innovation was really in your DNA. And no matter what company you were at, you helped it get to the next level. So I want to flash forward to when you joined Thomas. So in 2017, you joined as president and CEO. And there may be people who are not familiar with Thomas. Can you tell us a little bit about the company? You bet. And Lori, you know, as you know, we're celebrating our 122nd year in business, which is really remarkable. And you and I were comparing notes before we went on air here about uh, mutual experiences in running legacy family businesses. Thomas, back then and today serves as the primary resource for industrial buyers when they're sourcing products or selecting suppliers. So literally every second, an engineer or procurement professional or what's called an MRO, which pictures someone running a factory floor for Tesla or Boeing, select a product or evaluate a supplier on our thomasnet.com platform. We have a couple of other aspects about our business where we have CAD files and what are called BIM files, building information modeling files, that architects and engineers would use when they're building projects. And then we have a large marketing services business. So that flywheel effect of the two sides of that marketplace where buyers are looking to source products and services all the time. And then we have a series of suppliers that advertise to reach those. And so our model is unlike other online marketplaces that you see, we bring those buyers and sellers together. Are there family members still involved in the business? There are. So the fourth generation is, uh, is in the business, runs one of our products, our Thomas Product Data Solutions Group. The two co-chairs of the company are the grandsons of the original founder and are still very active. And I report into the co-chairs of the company and they're actively involved in the business. And Lori, I'll tell you a funny story and you might be able to relate to this from some of your experiences. My third day, on the job. It's pouring snow outside. It's January 4th. 
you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting my sea legs and they'd given me this beautiful office in an executive area between the two co-chairs. And about midway through the day, one of them appears in my door and he's all dressed like he's leaving. And he looked at me, he says, hey, I'm going to Florida. You got this. I'll be in touch. And I'm, okay, you know, I'm kind of, and then he knocks on the door to my office and he points at an oil painting of his grandfather on the wall. And I'm thinking maybe this is some ritual we do. And he does it a second time and he points again to his, his grandfather on the wall. And then he touches the door and said, this was his door. So the door to my office is 122 years old. And so every day that I'm in the office, I get this and I love it. I get this reminder of this incredible legacy this company has, but I also reflect oftentimes of the number of transitions that he, Harvey Mark Thomas, must have led this company through. And then my predecessors in adapting to market changes, technology changes, and other things. So uh, yeah, it's a remarkable environment to be in. I love that story. And the door is such a nice metaphor too. Right. Isn't it? Isn't it? And there were transitions in the business before you got there. Yes. And in a 122-year history, I'm certain there were many ups and downs in that company. But what I'd love for you to tell us about is what intrigued you about coming to this company? There must have been something that compelled you to say, hey, there's a challenge here I think I can add value to. Yeah. This company has transformed over the years. And if you can share a little bit of that background with us, that, w- that yeah. would be fascinating. You know, it's interesting in kind of collecting my thoughts for our conversation today, I kind of went back and revisited some of that. And there's a series of things that really attracted me. I had known of the company and the business. It's a very private company. And by that, I simply mean it's not a company that seeks a lot of media attention. When I joined at the 11th hour, I said, you do know that one of the things I'm going to do is pump up the volume on on who we are today. And they all kind of laughed and said, no, no, that's one of the reasons we'd like you to come join. But so I didn't know a ton about the inner workings of the company. And I think the first thing that hit me is after I was introduced to all the players was how open and transparent they were. They were incredibly open and far more than most companies that certainly at that level I would have seen when I engaged with them. So early on before I had signed things or anything else, they gave me access to the CFO. They gave me access to numbers. They gave me access to to various people. They really wanted to make sure that I saw the opportunity and they wanted me to come to that conclusion. So that was the first thing that I saw. The second thing I saw was actually a remarkable company. So I saw the technology they had built. It was clearly a stage where they had gotten a bit siloed. So the coordination, you know, of scaling a business up, you could clearly see the strategy was floating around, but it wasn't clarified. The company wasn't organized to execute well against that strategy. And there were some insourcing, outsourcing challenges in and around some technology areas. And I say that simply and casually like that, Lori, because what you can look at, you can say almost like a B-school case study, that's fixable. All of that's doable. What you don't know is, you know, the old Drucker line of the number one thing that needs, you know, strategy every time is culture is, does this culture want to change? And so that was the third piece when I, and I didn't know that until I really got in the door. People will tell you what you want to hear. But once I got in the company, I was blown away by the level of talent, but also kind of a pent-up energy of, hey, we know we're, we're not organized for optimal scale right now. We want somebody to help us with that. And then I guess the last thing, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, I have an innate experience and instinct on getting into markets around the time there's a massive market transition happening. 
And so as I started to study this, I thought, oh, this Industry 4.0 thing is not some slogan. This is for real. And we're witnessing literally a step change in the way digital technology is converging with traditional industrial products and services. And it's going to light off an era that's going to be mind-blowing. And as a business information or marketplace provider, boy, I want to be right in the middle of situations like that because it's fun. It's exciting. There's so much you can do. So that was the fourth thing that I saw that I thought, hey, I want to be in the middle of this party because it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, it sounds like a great fit because you had so many of those elements in your background as an innovator, as a thought leader, and then somebody who can help drive that culture forward. Yeah. But the core of that culture being ready for somebody like you is really important. Yeah, it is. Because people might assume at a mature company like that, that you would be oil and water. But it yeah. sounds like that was not the case, which is, which is fantastic. Yeah. We could do a whole thread on culture and change management. And I also realize when I get into environments like this, and I've been very fortunate in my career to have opportunities to come in and lead a positive change management initiative. And this is no different. The thing you're noting here is really, really critical because you can get into these environments and you can get stuck in quicksand of cultural bias, you know, some cost bias, all the things that we know to be true. That's a hard thing to stress test from the outside. It's really hard. And it's not till you get in it. And look, we've had our moments. And when someone like me walks in the door and says, hey, we're going to change everything and we're going to change who reports to who and we're going to do all this kind of stuff. I'm I'm sure not everybody was like, yippee, this is a great idea. But I think if you go through classic change management strategy, which I have been, if anything, overtrained in, I've been very fortunate that I got a lot of remarkable training in that area. I leaned back on that training. I leaned back on training I got at Columbia, that I got at Emory, that I got at Duke University through change management courses that I went through. And boy, it really helped because the ability to communicate, the ability to be clear, set you know, measurable milestones, all the things that we know to be true. But it was almost kind of a moment for me where I went, Tony, go back. You know what to do here. Go back to your core training. Don't miss a step here. And by and large, you know, it's a horizon goal, but I think we're making a a lot of progress on it. Yeah, and you've probably seen it for yourself and your clients as well, where if it's an organization going through transformation, that is not going to happen overnight. And so there's a persistence. The communication that you mentioned is really important. Can you take us back to some of Thomas's transformation from print of the green book yeah. to now this powerhouse of an online platform yeah. that makes it so seamless for their clients to transact with them? Can you give us a little bit of that history? Yeah, and it's a fascinating history, Lori. So the building we're in here in New York City, the company moved into this building in 1923. And the reason that Harvey Mark Thomas moved the company into this particular building is he wanted to control his own printing of those big green books. And at that point in time, this was the only building in New York City that had steel reinforced floors. And it was called the printer's building for an obvious reason. And back then, the kind of printing presses he needed weighed two and a half tons. And oh, by the way, the post office is literally directly across the street. So he was thinking in very advanced ways. We don't think of print today as, as an advanced uh, innovation. but So the company always had, I think, an eye towards that. The company was technically speaking probably one of, if not the first companies commercially online. Before that, the company had invested in, remember, interactive CD-ROM technology that you'd slide into your computer and, and do. They had invested in that. So they were very aware 
that the world was changing. And then they made an incredibly bold decision in 2005. And, and I have to say, this also had a big impact on me when I was getting to know the company because the guts it took to do this. In 2005, they burned the boats on the shore. And they said, we're going to stop producing the big green books. They were still dropping a lot of money to the bottom line. And while that print was starting to come down, it hadn't gone into free fall yet. And they said, we won't own the future the way that we owned the past unless we stop doing this. And boy, you think about guts and just fortitude and vision. It was a pretty gutsy move to do that. And Lori, how many companies could we name that they're still trying to well, print's only down by 30%. And they're, you know, how much do we put the resource into online? And it's just so confusing. So those transitions were, were really done. And when I came in and started to look at some of the technology dynamics, the company had invested in technology, but had gone through an era where a lot of it was outsourced to basically full-time captive outsourced partners. And I'm, I'm not here to be pejorative about that. But with the nature of technology, if you're not controlling your own IP and your own development, you can outsource infrastructure to AWS. You can't outsource day-to-day user experience development. I just philosophically totally against that. So we flipped that around. We actually spend less money on technology today by a material amount. And we have far more developers on staff. We're investing in things like artificial intelligence, We are launching a data business based on the digital exhaust of our business that spins off all this data. So I'd like to think that I'm having a positive influence, but as I think back, I think I'm just doing many of the things that people before me have done at this company. Yes, the technologies you and I are talking about are different, but I think probably some of the CD-ROM stuff and some of the early internet stuff was probably just as revolutionary, you know, in its time as thinking about cloud computing and infrastructure with AWS. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know if there was a hesitation or for your customers to say, oh, we're not ready for this? And was it more of a test and learn environment or they went all in? I think it's still happening, Lori. So if you look at it, it's interesting. If you look and you, you have some familiarity, both geographically where you are, but some of the work that you do with advanced manufacturing and you know, some of the things that are happening in the Pittsburgh area, the average American doesn't really understand much about the manufacturing industry. And it's a $2.4 trillion market in the United States. Most people think it's smaller. It is growing. It's been growing for many years. There's ridiculous amounts of job growth and all those types of things. There's actually a massive skill shortage in the industry. We don't talk about that often enough, but that's the reality. Now, what's happening in that industry is the jobs today are different. So what's happening is it's this fascinating fusion between an artisan, which comes by experience of how do I build and make things with advanced technology skills. So we use the term, these aren't white collar jobs, they're not blue collar jobs, they're new collar jobs. They're different types of jobs today. But one of the things, there's a but coming, but one of the things connected to that is a lot of these types of companies are experts at the factory floor, advanced manufacturing. They're really involved in Industry 4.0. What they haven't historically invested in is the digital transformation of industrial sales and marketing. So that's not necessarily their core. And I'm wildly generalizing now. So if you look at our core customer, they're on the front foot of digital marketing. But a lot of our customers up into literally probably maybe the last couple of years would openly debate whether they needed a website. And for folks that come from the environment I'm in, I had to kind of double clutch. I'd almost think they were kidding me. 
like this was some form of a joke. Well, we don't have those conversations much anymore. But without sounding pejorative, it's a little bit of a lagging industry when it comes to the transition of digital sales and marketing, which isn't a bad thing. But I know when I came in, one of the things that we started to do was to say, hey, this is a huge opportunity for us, but it's also a responsibility. So rather than just bludgeon these people with advertising solutions, we need to take them through the journey with us. We need to show them that their buyer is 70% of the way through the process before they engage with a sales rep today. That's the impact of the internet. We need to show them how to use these tools. We need to show them this journey of this digital transformation. And I don't think the company had been doing that as much as we needed to before. So today that I hate to call it education or thought leadership, whatever you want to put to that, we've done a ton of things around videos, new content, tutorials, guides, but also we do a series of webinars and live meetings out in the marketplace that we call Together for Industry, where we just literally take all of our data and information, turn it inside out, and we go out into individual regions of the country and we share the latest sourcing trends of what's happening here in Pittsburgh, what are people sourcing for here, but also what does today's industrial buying process look like? And again, this isn't a, if I can use the expression playbook, this isn't a new playbook, but for many of these folks, it is new. And we take it as both a responsibility on our side, but we can also do good by doing good, right? You know, as we help educate this customer, obviously we're the beneficiary of that education because we provide the products and services that are going to help them, you know, do the kinds of things that we're describing. Right. And there's so many things about that playbook that goes back to what you said earlier with your culture and the changes that have been happening in the company over so many years. It isn't just one area. It's all the areas. It's the approach to the customer. It's approach to marketing, product development, and your overall platform. And also what it leads you to, it sounds like, is you stay close to the customer through a variety of different ways. And so I want to transition a little bit to talking about your customer because I'm familiar a bit with some of your client-based or multi-generational businesses, and so many of them are in our industrial sector. You alluded to this earlier. And so over the next few years, there's projected to be a lot of transitions of ownership. And not all of these are going to be succession to a family member. They might be to an outside hire, it might be an M&A transaction with private equity, or maybe it's an ESOP where employees are taking more of an ownership role. And so I'm guessing that you probably see a lot of multi-generational businesses. So I'm wondering, what do you think about succession and with regards to these privately held companies? And do you get the sense that business owners are prepared for the transition that's coming? I'm going to make a blanket statement and say the answer to the question is no. And I say that understanding there's subtleties and nuances in here and not all companies are the same. But the number of times I have this type of conversation, and particularly as I've gotten to know some of these companies better and you know, spent time with them, I think you're seeing in many cases baby boomers that are delaying retirement because they don't have a clear succession plan. I think even the term sometimes, Lori, it's interesting. It's not unlike what we were talking about a minute ago of this digital transformation of sales and marketing. It's not that these people aren't, they're not stupid by any measure. They're brilliant, but they don't look at the world quite the same way. So even the term succession planning, I know when I bring it up to some of them, they're not completely sure what I mean until I unpack it a little bit. And then they'll kind of wince and say, gosh, you know, I thought my son was going to be interested in, or I thought, you know, maybe their employees would buy us out. You are also seeing at the same time this is happening, most of these folks are getting, 
an almost relentless series of phone calls from private equity firms. As you know, private equity sees this as a very attractive business. And we've had conversations with private equity firms that have reached out to us, Lori, that have rolled up as many as 18 manufacturing companies. And they've come direct to us and saying, hey, you're basically the marketplace platform. We'd like to work with you directly on behalf of these companies. And we're like, wow. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. And one of the other things I suggest to people is we're not in the business of succession planning. We're starting to do more content around it, though, so that people can open up and have these types of conversations. And what I've oftentimes said is, hey, private equity may be a very good way for you to go. And it may be a very natural and very thoughtful way for you to go. The, the Gordon Gecko era of private equity has changed quite a bit. And it could be a very thoughtful you know, path. So you may want to take a meeting or two. And I want to be clear here. I'm not suggesting I'm an expert on this and I'm advising companies. But to answer your question, I don't think if there is such a thing as an average company, many have thought it through thoroughly. And I think it's also a little bit of one of those slightly awkward, it's a little like, have you made a will? You know, it's kind of one of those awkward questions of like, maybe I don't want to have to think about that. But I think as you see so many of these baby boomers that built these remarkable businesses, and many of these folks are bearing down on 70, if not, you know, 70 plus, they've made a lot of money. They want to go have fun and go play golf and, you know, not have to be at work every day. It's a real conundrum for many of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the readiness is so subjective of what makes a company ready. Because you have to be personally ready, financially ready. The business has to be ready. Yeah. And so that succession, that transition means different things to different companies and to different founders. Well, I, I think you and I were talking a little bit before we got started, too, of mutual experiences of being involved in family companies. I think there's also setting the stage for success. Mm-hmm in this as well. So let's say part of a succession is you may be in an era where a family member is not going to run it and you need to bring in outside management to run it. That is a form of succession planning in and of itself, but it's very tricky to do because founder run or family run businesses have certain quirks to them, no different than if you were sitting around my family dinner table, you you might see some quirks that were different than your family dinner table. And I know at Thomas, and this was certainly true at CMP Media and Ziff Davis, which were also family run, the key folks, the family members really thought that through so that they they gave room to folks who came from the outside. They embraced people who came from the outside. I, I wouldn't have been anywhere near as enjoyable of an opportunity, but also successful at Thomas, had they not really given that a fair amount of thought of, we need to give this this executive some room to come in and put his stamp on the company. And that doesn't mean the whole company turns left instead of right. But I think there's some, we keep coming back to culture, don't we? There's some cultural dynamics here that founders or family run companies really need to think through because, you know, the old, well, sure, Tony said that, but wonder what dad thinks, you know, kind of thing. That's that, it doesn't matter the size of the company. That can happen if you're not very clear about how you're going to run the company. Yeah, it's being clear about the roles, being clear about being empowered, yeah. Yeah. and then having that balance of the family business owners when they're bringing on, say, a next generation entrepreneur, especially if they're someone from the outside. Yeah. How do they meld? How do they get along? And how do they move forward? Yeah. It, it, is, very, it is very tricky. So you've it navigated is. that very, very well. It sounds like in your experience, if you had to boil it down, 
what advice do you have for family businesses that are considering a transition to a non-family member CEO? To the extent that you can, define what you think you need in that candidate you're bringing in. And and I find oftentimes when companies have gone through this, they tend to be overly generic. Well, I want good financial skills or I want good operating skills. And to me, it's kind of like if you picture a, a CV, right, a resume, to me, it's probably 40% in the resume. And the resume is simply the ticket that gets you into the room. And what I always recommend to people is once you've reviewed the resume and you've validated that it's accurate and the person has that experience, throw that away because the resume becomes irrelevant at that point in time. Now, the 60% of it is in the attributes you need for this person and what do you need to do to make this person successful. So long-winded answer to your simple question, but I, I recommend to people really sweat the details of If the right person walked in the room, right, what would that person, what kind of background, but also what would their interpersonal skills be like? What would their um, EQ versus IQ be like? You know, all those types of things. And I think we collectively tend to underthink that because we get enamored with the, the, the pedigree. Oh, my gosh, they've got a MBA. Oh, wow. They went to Stanford. Oh, my gosh. Right. And those are really important things. But most of us realize when it's actually running a culture and a business, those become incredibly unimportant very fast, right? If the person doesn't have the attributes of leadership skills, communication skills, adaptability, all the things that we need from modern leaders today. I like to boil down things to strength, motivations, and fit. Yeah, I love that. Every interview, every question you get fits in one or more of those buckets. And so everything you just said, yeah. you know, it, it's all about strengths, motivations, and fit. It's interesting it, to, to build on that a little bit. You're very familiar with Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great and Built to Last. And he's, he's been somewhat off the stage recently. And he, he wrote a recent book and was, was being interviewed about the book. And he was asked, what are the attributes of great leaders today? And his response floored me at a level where I was driving and I literally pulled into a parking lot and replayed it. It was a podcast, replayed it about three times and then wrote it down. I was so blown away. And it's really simple. But he basically said, the three things are unshakable self-belief. Number two, high level of paranoia and self-doubt that balances number one. And number three, impulse control. And I I can't tell you, Lori, how many times I've thought of those three things since he said it. This was last September. And I think of those all the time, and there's a little bit of cleverness to it and, and, and that kind of stuff. But I think if you start to look at what makes great leaders, I think your, your point, that motivation, so many things fit in there. The other thing I would add that I think is really important, particularly for change management, but maybe this is true everywhere, emotional stamina. So I oftentimes will interview people and ask questions about emotional stamina. And I would say 95% of the time, people are very flat-footed when you bring up that discussion. A, they oftentimes don't know what you mean. And B, if they do know what you mean, they're a little frightened about how they might answer that question. Because in the wrong hands, if I say, gosh, Larry, I'm pretty fragile. You know, I, I can get down pretty easily. My emotional stamina is not very good. It might be a very quick interview. But if you think about what it takes, people use different terms, grit, determination, you know, all these types of things. But to run 
at a high level in any endeavor. I don't care what it is, you know, and in any size business, you're going to have high highs, you're going to have low lows, and you've got to keep moving forward. And so that emotional stamina, I think more and more about that. And by the way, if you come up with a way to interview for that or test for that, let me know. But it's something I find if people are in touch with it, that's the issue. If they can have a dialogue about it and go, wow, I've never thought of that. But, you know, maybe they tell you an anecdote or two, or they start to talk about self-management. Hey, here's what I do to keep myself fresh. Here's my daily routine, you know, those types of things. I find the people that can hang in that conversation tend to be the people that have gone through those experiences and kind of know what to do when they hit a guardrail or two along the way. Yeah, those are the people that look in the mirror. They're very self-introspective. Right. They're realistic. They want to improve. And what I used to say about myself being in a CEO role is even though I was a CEO, I was still very coachable. Yeah. And I found that to be really important that our learning is never stopping. And so being someone who's open to that feedback and their surroundings, especially as a CEO or an outside hire in a family business, they probably have to be you know, really cognizant of those things. Yeah, I think, I think you're touching on something too, not to, to overdo the thread there, but I think I'm always focused on, is this person curious? Is there just a sense of curiosity about it or are they a mercenary? Well, you know, I'm going to get paid to go in and I'm going to come in here and by God, I'm going to fix this thing and then I'm going to go off to the next one. But are they genuinely curious? You know, I, I was thankfully born with an innate curiosity. You know, I could sit there at a bar and start asking the bartender how they made that drink and how they learn how to do that. How long have they been working here? And why do you, you know, buy that bourbon versus that? I'm just innately curious. And I think I was born with that. But I think that's something I like to work with people that are innately curious, right? Because it, you know, I think that plays well. The other thing you touched on too is, you know, it sounds hokey to, to say ongoing learning, but, you know, you can come at that question a lot of ways. What's the last book you read? What do you do for inspiration? You know, how do you stay current in your industry? And most of the time, people that are really good, boy, you have to stop the conversation because they've got, oh, well, I listen to this podcast. You know, how I just, let me pull this book out and show you, you know, whatever it might be. You know, I'm taking this online course or, or they'll say, hey, what do you recommend? You know, the people that have a very simple clipped answer to that, I find if you're not that interested in ongoing learning, eh, you know, I don't think there's going to be a good fit, certainly with the types of people that I work with. So, Tony, I've enjoyed talking to you today. And my last question for you is really inspired by you. I've enjoyed listening to the Thomas Industry podcast. And I know the last question you ask your guests is if they had a billboard, what is the saying that would be on that billboard? So, I'm going to turn that to you. What would your billboard say? Well, Lori, first off, thanks for the shout out on our podcast. I probably just gave it away a little bit, but my billboard would read, learn how you learn. And, and by that, I mean, as simple as it sounds, but I also believe that part of the secret to life is not just learning, but learn how you learn, because you might learn differently than I learned. Do you learn best experientially? Are you uh, autodidactic? Are you, you know, how do you learn? I think that is a huge, huge thing for everybody. And I don't think it's ever too late to try to figure that out you know, how do you best learn and, and, and that kind of stuff. So long way of saying, learn how you learn would be my billboard. So Tony, thank you so much for telling your succession story today. Lori's great being on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to the Succession Stories podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll consider sharing it with a friend. 
If you think it's worth five stars, please go to iTunes and rate it so that others can find it as well. I would love to hear from you. Tell me what insights inspired you today. And if you have suggestions for content, please let me know. You can reach me at Lori Barkman on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, or send an email to successionstoriespodcast at gmail.com.